as we turn our hearts towards um, the preaching of the word, uh, join me in this prayer of illumination. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to open our hearts to its truth. Please remove from us apathy, cynicism, callousness, or rebellion so that we may be sincerely hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. We ask this for the honor and glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The word comes to us this morning from Luke chapter 9, verses 20 through 36. Listen for the word of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ellen. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jeff Harden. Uh, My day job is to be a biology professor at UW-Madison. And it's great to be with you. As we've already mentioned earlier today, Pastor Jim and his son Jonathan are on a father-son bonding adventure together. And um, those are very precious when your kids get to be a certain age as Jonathan is. So um, please be praying for that. And we've already, uh, Shannon already mentioned that Pastor Evan has a big exam coming up on Saturday. It's kind of the last hurdle within our denomination. And um, so please be praying for Evan. He's gonna be awesome. Um, And uh, so no no one is worried, but, and yet I know he would appreciate your prayers. Well, um, I know some of you here today are proud grandparents. Susie and I don't actually have any biological grandchildren, but we have the privilege of being honorary grandparents. Some of you may remember Emma Huang. Um, She was a pediatric resident here at UW Hospital, and her husband, Mark Young, he got his PhD in physics at UW-Madison. 
Mark and Emma were in our household, and uh, if you don't know what a household is, it's what Geneva calls our small groups, uh, where we do Bible study and do... Mark and Emma live very far away. They live in Taiwan. They have two boys, Elijah, age five, and Daniel, age two. All of them visited us over the Christmas holidays, and um, between jet lag and young children, I have to say it was a pretty wild ride. <laughs> um, we learned that young boys in 2024 like to watch something called Paw Patrol. Has anybody else heard about I see, yeah, that's awesome, okay. Well, in addition to the, uh, the earworm that's now being injected into my brain of the theme song of that cartoon, uh, if you don't know what it is, it's a 3D animated cartoon in which puppies drive special uh, vehicles heavily accessorized, and uh, they can do all kinds of things. We found that little boys love this stuff. Um, but I couldn't help thinking as I was watching it, you know, this is kind of a gateway cartoon to get them ready for more uh, advanced gadget-containing cartoons and movies. And, you know, one of those is the Transformers franchise. Maybe you've seen some of the movies, or maybe you grew up during the heyday of the Transformers cartoons. They're, they're sentient, machine-based life forms that can transform into cars and trucks. In fact, they do this so well that they can blend in for long periods of time only to transform when there's some crisis on planet Earth. Some of you who are old enough may remember the Transformer tagline, Transformers, more than meets the eye. Yeah, that's right, more than meets the eye. You know, uh, More Than Meets the Eye is not just a motto of a Michael Bay Hollywood franchise. Um, in fact, sometimes some of the most essential realities are hidden from our view. Now, I'm a biologist. I work on embryos that are smaller than a grain of salt, and so I guess that's part of my stock and trade in a way. But some realities cannot be revealed by even the most powerful microscopes, and uh, those realities can only be revealed as God himself peels back the curtain to reveal them. And our passage today that Ellen read for us does just this. In a moment of supernatural transparency on an unnamed mountainside, there's a blazing revelation of Jesus, and we call that the transfiguration. Now, I have to say I haven't grappled with the transfiguration nearly enough. I don't mean that I haven't ticked the transfiguration box in my mental checklist of Orthodox Christian theology. But what I mean is that I haven't really grappled with the weirdness. For me, it's always seemed to be a bit as if it were parachuted into the middle of the gospel stories. And it's always been easier for me to tread lightly on what's going on here than to marinate my mind and my heart in what's going on here. Uh, in a wonderful new Lenten devotional on the Transfiguration, which I highly recommend, called Our Radiant Redeemer, Pastor Tim Chester expresses the same sort of sense. He says this, you know, it could be that the Bible doesn't make sense, or it could be that there's a bigger significance waiting to be discovered. My policy is to assume the second option and dive deep into the weirdness. And I agree with Chester, so let's dive in together, shall we? Now, I want to make... Yes, three points about the transfiguration. 
First, the transfiguration tells us something crucial about the identity of Jesus. Second, the transfiguration tells us something crucial about the mission of Jesus. And third, it tells us something crucial about the followers of Jesus. So something about the identity of Jesus, his mission, and his followers. Let's begin with Jesus' identity. We probably should set the stage because the, the passage in your bulletin doesn't go up into the previous section to set the context. Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up on the mountain. And we actually don't know which mountain this is. Tradition says a mountain called Mount Tabor. But it's like it was Mount Hermon. Uh, that's probably a better choice because it's closer to where the action was occurring immediately prior to this in Caesarea Philippi. Mark and Matthew say it happened six days after the preceding events. Luke says about eight days. Now, if you count parts of days, Luke's about eight days ends up being the same as Mark and Matthew's six days. There are a lot of things we could say about that little time indicator. But maybe all we need to know is that the larger context in which this occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that the transfiguration comes just after Jesus has taught about his identity and how he must suffer. You may remember Peter's protest, uh, at which point Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You can look that up in Mark chapter 8, for example. Jesus then says that just like him, his followers have to take up their cross and follow him, walking in his footsteps. And if you look up in Luke chapter 9, where our passage for today resides, you can find that in Luke 9.23. Right before what Ellen read in verse 27, Jesus says this, There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's been a lot of discussion about what that might mean, but I think the context, uh, given the context, it makes most sense to think that maybe Jesus is talking about what's about to happen during the transfiguration. And so we get to our passage for today. And in verse 29, things get really weird, don't they? Jesus' appearance became, quote, different. He was transfigured. The original uh, word there is metamorpho. We use a related noun, metamorphosis, as a loan word to refer to a profound change. Like maybe when a pupa becomes a chrysalis and then is transformed into a butterfly. In a way, this is Jesus' chrysalis moment. And a New Testament scholar, Joel Green, says, you know, the point isn't so much that Jesus experienced an internal adjustment of some sort that led to his transformed appearance, but that his inner being was made transparent to those who accompanied him. I think that makes a lot of sense. For a moment, the blinds were opened to reveal Jesus' divine glory. Now, um, whatever happened, the gospel writers sure had a hard time describing it, didn't they? Mark seems to be struggling for words. Mark 9.3 says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Clearly, that's not a statement about the efficacy of laundry detergent. 
Luke says his clothing became gleaming. Another way to translate that word is uh, flashing like lightning. Now, whatever they were describing, it was clearly overwhelming. If you pull out your, your bulletin and look at the cover, this sketch from Matthias Grunewald depicts what Matthew seems to be describing. The disciples fell on their faces. That's in Matthew chapter 17. Luke says they were afraid as they entered the cloud, uh, Luke 9.34. Now, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, in a book on the meditations, a book on meditations uh, regarding Eastern Orthodox icons of Jesus, really lovely book, describes the scene really well. He says this, Jesus' human life is shot through with gods, bringing with him all the fullness of the creator. No wonder the disciples are sprawling helplessly. They face a tidal wave. It's exactly what's happening to them. They don't know what's hit them. But, you know, there's a lot more going on in this passage, uh, and we don't have time to unpack all of the Old Testament allusions here, but they're really thick and run fast throughout this passage. The cloud, the intense light, or flashes of lightning as Luke has it, are the same language used to describe God's presence in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 1 uses that very same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament. But I think the most direct comparison is probably what's going on with Moses in Exodus chapters. What happened in Exodus and what's happening here, both on mountains. In Exodus, Moses takes companions, as Jesus does here. In Exodus 33, Moses asks Yahweh, the God of the covenant, to show me your glory. The transfiguration is clearly all about glory, isn't it? In Exodus 34, the glory is terrifying, just as it is here for the disciples. In Exodus, there's a voice from a cloud that reveals Yahweh's identity, just as God's voice from a cloud here reveals Jesus' identity. I think we're meant to compare and contrast these two biblical stories. What do these illusions tell us? Well, uh, Jesus is not merely an inspiring human. He's way more than that. Uh, I attend men's Bible study, as some of you do in the room on Saturday mornings. We've been going through 1 Timothy. We just got to the end of 1 Timothy, and in chapter 6, Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Unlike Moses, whose face shone with reflected glory, Jesus is generating his own glory. According to his nature from all eternity. Uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. That's Hebrews 1.3. Now, our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters talk about this a lot more than we do. They call it uncreated light. And in a few minutes, we're going to recite the Nicene Creed, which talks about our one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light. That's who Jesus is in his very nature. And yet when the, when the transfiguration abruptly ends, who are we left with? Well, it's the same human Jesus the disciples have been hanging with all this time. Somehow the uncreated light that's part of who Jesus is as God the Son never swallowed up his humanity. 
He's fully human, fully divine, united in a single person. That's what Christians through the centuries have always affirmed. And we get to see that here in all of his awesome splendor. This is the Lord whom we serve. And if that doesn't get you excited about being a Christ follower, I hope you'll think more deeply. Right, well, that's the identity of Jesus that we at least see a little bit of revealed in the transfiguration. What about that second point? Let's talk about the mission of Jesus. You know, uh, one thing I've found particularly weird about the transfiguration passage is the appearance of Moses and Elijah. What? What's going on here? Where do they come from? I mean, how do they have recognizable bodies? How do the disciples know who these guys are? They've never seen them on the street. Um, You know, they couldn't look up their Insta account. I mean, they they had no idea. How, How did they know who they were? You know, all those questions I have are uninteresting to the inspired writers of the gospel accounts. Uh, They're much more interested in what this means for who Jesus is and what his mission is about. If you have a study Bible, as many of you might, the notes on this passage will probably say something about how Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets and that Jesus fulfills them both. And that would not be wrong. Wouldn't be wrong. Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 17 said, don't presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So we have it right from Jesus himself. But there are probably a lot of other connections going on in this passage. Elijah was one of two men who never died. The other one was a guy named Enoch. Um, Moses did die. But there was a lot of controversy about where his body ended up. Jude, in fact, suggests maybe angels took it up to heaven. So so maybe they're getting at the interesting way that Jesus was going to die and be resurrected. Or maybe because uh, Moses and Elijah were supposed to stage a return when the Messiah established his kingdom according to contemporary Jewish thought at the time the Gospels were written. Maybe what's going on here is that these two men, their presence is ratifying who Jesus is as the Messiah, Christ, the coming king. You know, maybe all of this stuff is meant for us to think about. Uh, But in any case, uh, Luke's version of the transfiguration gives us an important detail, and that's what you have in your bulletin. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his departure. In Greek, that word is exodus. They're speaking about a new exodus, something bigger than exodus 1.0. Exodus 2.0 is coming, and Jesus is going to achieve it through his death and ultimate victory announced through his resurrection. Well, at this point, Peter inserts himself into the narrative, doesn't he? you got to love Peter. Uh, you know, I, um, I feel so many affinities for Peter myself. And especially Mark's gospel, which many people think uh, uniquely bears the stamp of Peter and his recollections, says this, For he did not know how to reply, for they became terrified. Luke says, 
Peter did not know what he was saying. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, if you've ever been nervous and you've blurted all of a sudden, anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, me, definitely. Then you know how Peter maybe felt. Peter has an interesting solution, doesn't he? These three guys are having this amazing convo, and um, they're talking, and Peter says, hey, let's build some shelters. Now, there's a lot that we could think about there. Maybe it's an allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles, but the word that he uses for shelter is the same word that's used in Greek for tabernacle. I think Peter's strategy is somehow let's contain Jesus' glory. You know, it's an interesting idea because, as you may remember from the Old Testament, where does Yahweh's glory dwell as the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness? In a tent in the tabernacle. But Peter had missed something, and that is that Jesus was already the tabernacle of God himself. You know, John says in chapter one of his gospel that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The word dwelling there is the same Greek word for tabernacle. Well, mercifully, God's thundering voice puts an end to Peter's uh, suggestions and um, pulls Peter up short. And God's voice of approval should remind us of a few things. One, of course, is the same kind of announcement that occurred at Jesus' baptism where a voice from heaven declares that Jesus is the long-awaited Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one. He's God's Son in whom the Father's well-pleased. But here, in the transfiguration narrative, if you look at where it resides in the Gospels, the next phase of the mission is going to be very different. It's going to involve a different sort of glory. We know the end of the story, but the disciples on that mountainside didn't. Now the voice says, listen to him in, in these uh, transfiguration narratives. That might be echoing something that occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses is talking about the promised prophet who's gonna be his successor one day when God sets up his kingdom in all of its glory. Jesus is that prophet, the chosen one. And in Luke 9.35, in fact, that very language is used. Luke uniquely says, this is my son, my chosen one. That's what he has the voice from heaven saying. And that phrase chosen one echoes something from Isaiah chapter 42. Verse 1, which says this, here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Isaiah 42 is one of the servant songs. You may be especially familiar with the one in Isaiah 53. These are songs about the suffering servant. The predictions of the suffering of the Messiah as we look back with our New Testament lenses 
See, only by walking the road of suffering as he turns toward Jerusalem and what lies ahead can uh, Jesus fulfill his mission. Jesus can't leapfrog that mission, what lies ahead, as some sort of shortcut to glory. Only by walking that road of suffering can he fulfill his calling. And that's why, among other things, the voice from the cloud stops Peter in his tracks. There can be no shortcuts. And in fact, in Luke's account, you may have noticed something. Uh, Peter, James, and John go with Jesus, and they are praying before the transfiguration occurs. Does that sound familiar to you? Should, because there's a similar mountainside, the same three men going with Jesus and going away to pray. In fact, in both situations, the disciples are sleepy for a while. That later event is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think we're meant to see that here in the Transfiguration, knowing what's coming. This is something the disciples at the time, I think, probably didn't grasp, but one day they certainly would. The cross of Christ is God's means of ultimate victory, and as we've said, the pattern for all of Jesus' followers. So that brings us to our third point. Let's talk about what this passage means for Jesus' followers, the followers of Jesus. Mark 9.2 says that Jesus was transfigured before them, before the three uh, men who accompanied Jesus. And so I think we can infer, at least in part, what was going on was for the benefit of the disciples. I can only imagine what kind of indelible marks this made on the disciples uh, later. Uh, I think the transfiguration probably made a lot more sense to Peter, James, and John uh, after the resurrection and uh, was probably something that energized them as they lived out their lives of service to their Lord. Now, we can actually see that in the case of Peter because Peter talks about it in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is what he says in verses 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, we ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's writing near the end of his life, and clearly this had stuck with him throughout all the years since the events of the Transfiguration. Well, Peter witnessed the Transfiguration. That's great. But we weren't on that mountain, were we? How should the Transfiguration reverberate in our lives? Let's think about that together for a few moments. I've certainly heard a lot of sermons that say something like the following, that the take-home message here is, don't seek these mountaintop experiences. You really need to go down in the valley into the real life and do your job. But I think if that's the take-home message that we have from this passage, we've missed quite a lot. There's so much more going on here, I think, and I think we are asked to think about 
the connections between what's going on in the transfiguration and our lives. And, and let me try to do that for, for a little bit. Remember that Mark, in his account of the transfiguration, used this verbal form of metamorphosis, metamorpho. Well, there, in, in uh, Luke 9 and the other transfiguration passages, it's translated into English as transfigured. But the same verb is used elsewhere, and it's applied to us. And there, it's usually translated as transformed. Maybe the paradigm here is one of my go-to passages as a university professor trying to be a Christian in the modern university, and that's Romans 12, 2. And it says this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's that same word. The difference between us and Jesus is that his transfiguration makes apparent what he already is in his essence, just so that we can see it, albeit briefly. In our case, the transformation that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 2 is an ongoing process. It's a metamorphosis that's already begun in some senses as we've uh, committed our lives to Christ and have entered into new life through him. But it's something that should continue our whole lives as we're progressively transformed into the image of Christ. So the question is, how can that kind of metamorphosis occur? Well, I don't have anything revolutionary to suggest to you, no quick fix, but let me suggest a couple of things by using some other passages that use this kind of transformation language. Let me suggest two foundational ingredients. The first comes from 2 Corinthians 3, 18. You may not have noticed, but our liturgy was very intentionally crafted to reflect the fact that today is Transfiguration Sunday, and Pastor Evan actually read this earlier in the service. It goes like this, and we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, in the context, Paul is contrasting the glory of Moses, which would fade after he would have his mountain experiences. He's, he's contrasting that with the unfading glory that Christ followers have as they gaze at the face of Jesus. As we develop a personal, dynamic relationship with our risen Lord, we place ourselves in a position where his glory can continue to transform us. And that happens through the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, in that little book by Rowan Williams that I introduced earlier, um, he reflects on an icon of the transfiguration. And he says this, looking at Jesus seriously changes things. If we do not want to be changed, it is better not to look too hard or too long. I want to be changed. I don't know about you. I want to be changed. But am I really putting myself in a position to lovingly gaze on the beauty of Christ? That's the question I ask myself. It's easy for me to substitute learning things about Jesus for spending time with Jesus. And I think my wife Susie has a lot to teach me about cultivating a relationship with Christ daily. 
All right, well, the second ingredient comes from the transfiguration accounts themselves. Remember what happens? The voice in the cloud is speaking. And to put a stop to Peter's suggestions, the voice says, as it, as it says in Luke 9.35 here, listen to him. Even that is probably a reference, as we've seen. But I want to focus on something else. Listen to him is interesting, isn't it? Think about what's going on at this moment. There's all this light, this light show going on. It's just like totally amazing, right? Why doesn't the voice say, look at him? Why is that? You ever wondered about that? Well, I have. I think that apparently more important than looking at Jesus was listening to the words of Jesus. And I think Peter understands this. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. We read verses 16 to 18. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Peter goes on to say this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of people, but people spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's already said that his personal experience of the transfiguration was foundational for him. It stuck with him his whole life. But he says here something pretty amazing, and that is even more foundational is the inspired word of God. <clears throat> what I think is even more interesting, perhaps, is he uses this phrase of the morning star rising in our hearts, you know, Jesus uses that phrase to refer to himself at the end of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 22. He says, I'm the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Now, if we connect the dots, I think Peter's saying something pretty impressive. He's saying that when energized by the Holy Spirit's power, the word of God can transform us so that we become many morning stars with hearts filled to the brim with Jesus himself. So the question I have to ask myself then is am I putting myself in a position where God's word can work on me in this way? You know, Geneva Campus Church has lots of opportunities for you to be exposed to the scriptures. Women's and men's Bible studies are a great opportunity there as are our households where there's almost always some sort of Bible study component. We need to place ourselves in positions where God can continue to work through the scriptures. Because when we do that, we can be transformed. We can experience the kind of transfiguration that we were meant for. Well, let's wrap up. You know, the, the transfiguration tells us some crucial things. Things about Jesus' identity. Things about Jesus' mission. Things about us as Jesus' followers. As long as we live, of course, and I feel this pretty profoundly at this stage in my life, we will be works in progress. But we're already more than meets the eye. And one day our transformation is going to com be complete. 
First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 say this. Beloved, now we're children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. That's a confident expectation of ultimate transformation that we can orient our whole lives around. Do you believe that? I want to lead us in prayer using a prayer from Gregory the Sinaite, a church father. And please pray along with me. Father, today we come to you desiring transformation. Lord Jesus, today in the light of your transfiguration, may we see that May we see you there as the Father's light, which never sets. Let our minds be transfigured in the light of your glory. Lead us up into the mountain of vision. Shine on us like the sun. Appear before us through your goodness. Gather our minds and our voices towards you, as you did Moses and Elijah. And fill us with your glory so that you might have first place in our hearts, in the world, for all time. In your name we pray. Amen.